The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. May I extend my welcome to the panel, Why Did I Do That? I'll introduce our panellists one by one and please do make them feel welcome. Our first panellist is Hugh Mackay. Hugh is a well-known social researcher in Australia. He's written a number of books and he's also a psychologist. Please, Hugh, come up. Our second panellist, in fact, we've had Tanvir here once before. Uh, at the start in February, Tanvir Ahmed, a psychiatrist and also a columnist in the Sydney Morning Herald. And our last panellist, last but not least, Al Stewart. Al, a regular speaker here at the City Bible Forum. Please welcome Al. We uh, just had the opportunity to do this panel discussion in North Sydney and um, see how this one evolves. But I'll start in a similar manner to how we started over there. I have a good friend, George, who works in advertising. And George told me early on in his career, he worked out the secret to his success and that was to be in there early in the office and be at the, at the end of the day. That way the boss could see him, that he was working hard. So to what extent is our desire to be seen um, one of our, our basic desires that drives what we do? I might ask you, Hugh, first. I wouldn't express it like that. And by the way, I, I think your, your friend George was oversimplifying the secret of his success. It wouldn't just be that. Uh, what he did in between arrival and departure, I think, would also count. Um, but so I wouldn't it say it was advertising. <laughs> Be careful. Uh, I'd say yes. That's one of the uh, one of the manifestations of our very basic desire to be taken seriously. But my response to George would be to say there are going to be lots of desires driving that behaviour. And another, thing, another little observation I'd make about that is it's, a, it's stupid. I mean, your, your, your mate <laughs> was wrong. Uh, you, you don't get... Uh, I mean, last, last in, first in, last out is a sort of a standard joke in law firms, not far from here, um, but it's not the secret uh, because there's never a secret. Uh, it's always multifactorial. Everything we do is driven by a complex set of interacting, often competing desires. So yeah, the desire to be seen, the desire to be taken seriously, but also the desire for control, the desire to belong, the desire to connect, the desire for something to believe in, the desire to be useful. All these desires are satisfied in the workplace for many people and I'd never say there's one of them that explains Everything. our success. Yeah. Yes. But I dare say that uh, for a lot of us um, in the corporate world, you know, the pat on the back by the partner or the manager, that goes a long way through the day. Would you think so, Tanvir? Um, yeah, I guess it's a, a equivalent. I mean, your analogy initially, I think, relates uh, very much to outer markers, if you like. And in many ways, in modern urban life, because we relate to so many different people to short periods, so from anthropologically speaking, if you're in a kind of African tribe or something, you might have an amulet or kind of a tiger tooth showing of some element of status or how important you are. So today we have a host of outer markers to show, be it status or belonging, what sort of tribe or group we are or how important we are. 
And sometimes I'd work these outer markers or, you know, may show just me working late is somehow kind of equated with, or therefore I'm important, something like this. And often, often people boast about their working hours in a place like Sydney as if that constitutes some sort of importance or status, don't they? But um, uh, I guess more, more broadly than that, you're talking about the pat on the back. I guess from a side, you know, we certainly seek approval, especially from people in authority, and that's, I think, a quarter's eye, especially from mum or dad, kind of going, you know, as a child. And often the way we relate to authority in other sections of our life is closely related to how we uh, viewed or interacted with our parents. So the person who had difficulties with their father often had difficulties with authority in other parts of their life. Coming back to the core question, I mean, uh, you know, trying to distill some core, uh, I guess, core fundamentals of this. So one is I, I like to think that we need projects and intimacy, that we need to feel useful, we need either work, not necessarily a paid capacity, and that's why we're talking about your friend in a work, and increasingly in our lives, particularly possibly my generation, the work identity is usurping almost all other identities. And I see that, often I see that in my work where people who would tie themselves too closely to a work identity, uh, it can be very dangerous when you know, that's shifted in some form or challenged. Uh, but obviously intimacy is, is, a, is a critical need where we need to feel loved on a much deeper level than you know, being a pat on the back by the partner. That, that, that's not enough for us to feel approved or loved. We need a much deeper love for people that we're actually exposed to, that can actually see us you know, uh, vulnerable and uh, uh, you know, broken down, more bare, laid bare, if you like. So both of those needs are critical. So, Al, um, I guess both panellists have touched on the fact that we respond to some external stimuli of being accepted, of being um, approved. Uh, does that suggest that we're quite insecure, do you think? Uh, I think it is that we are wired up wanting to be... I know it sounds like a cliche, but we're wired up wanting to be loved. Um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with Elaine de Botton's book, Status Anxiety. Uh, it, it's a brilliant book. He just touches on saying we, you know, his, his way of dividing things up is we want two loves. We want um, a romantic, intimate, one-on-one kind of love with a partner, but we also want the love of the world around us. And you can call that status or um, love or respect or whatever you want to call it. And, and that is as important as romantic love. I know when I worked in the business world, I'd see, well, it was mainly men, I'd, I'd see men working themselves to death uh, and destroying their marriages and so Why? Because at work, they had status. People took them seriously. And also, I think it's why when people in middle age, and I've got a bit of a soft spot for middle-aged men, uh, we do it tough. Uh, when a middle-aged man loses his job, I, I said, man, woman, when a middle-aged person loses their job, it's just devastating if you've invested that whole status significance thing into that. Well, this desire to be loved that you mentioned, um, there's a question here for you, Tanvir. How do you explain love scientifically as a psychiatrist? Yeah, look, great question. Um, a, certainly, let's think about various needs, um, you know, be it to belong, be it kind of collective needs, the collective identity, feeling belong, feeling part of a tribe, core social needs, and that's very mammalian. Now, I know we've, we've spoken about this earlier, so I just want to give a few images that I spoke about at a previous such event. So let's think about our brain initially. 
And often neuroscientists will talk about our brain essentially being three different brains rolled into one. And one is the reptilian brain, which is essentially our instinctual needs, our most primitive base cells. And they're our needs for you know, food, sex, sex uh, fear, aggression, that's where all that sort of stuff comes from. Then above that we have what's called the limbic cortex, and that's essentially our uh, kinship behaviour. That's the mammal, that's the mammal in us, and that's something we share with uh, other primates. And then above that, and the bit that makes us special, is the cerebral cortex, which is essentially our reasoning selves, and the bit that coordinates all the other parts of the brain. So that gives a sense of you know, what I guess, makes us us. And where does love fit into that? I mean, uh, how, let's try and think about how we might even define love. I wouldn't mind hearing what Al, how Al might define love. Um, uh, I, guess, you know, I guess there's various types of love, isn't there? I mean, I've, I, heard, I remember hearing sort of Greek philosophers, and certainly in religion will talk about an individual love where an individual you know, may uh, unconditionally accept someone for who they are and have great affection for them uh, above their, beyond their, uh, you know, look, status, their position in the hierarchy, etc. There may be a love for mankind, etc. Uh, and there may be a, a you know, higher love, uh, and I know there are Greek terms for this, and now may, may um, you know, help me relate them. Where is a bigger love for, I guess, um, living things or the world beyond? So... I mean, love's going to mean different things. But so it sounds like it's quite hard to explain. <laughs> I would argue it's still, it's still a survival aspect, but there is something unique to humans that where we do feel this you know, requirement to be accepted unconditionally, yeah. and it seems to be our core fundamental need that's not terribly rational and goes beyond ours. So that does go to the crux of unique, something uniquely human. We'll go to Al, but then I'd like to bring Hugh into it. Uh, I just want to ask Tanvi... Uh, just return, sir, before I have an answer to your question, would you say then that there's, there's more going on with us than you can explain scientifically? Do you know what I mean? Is oh, of course. There's more... Well, I, mean, I mean, A, we don't... You know, there's only so much knowledge we have about the world and we can have certain theories that are based on what we observe and what we've learned. But of course, yeah, of course not. We're far from being able to and, and explain fact, ourselves. Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd say that science is a paradigm that's limited and then there's something beyond that in terms of trying to understand life and who we are and what we're worth and so on. Okay. Uh, you haven't defined love, but... I can you give you the Greek words and their meaning if you want <laughs> and everyone will go to sleep or we can hear from Hugh, whichever. <laughs> All right, Hugh, so let, let's... Um, you've written this book, What Makes Us Tick, and you've identified ten different desires there, but you do early on say there's one main desire in a, sec, in a sense which controls the others. Yes, I wouldn't say quite that it controls uh, the others, Peter. What I would say is that everything we do is the result of the constantly changing relationship between these desires, the dynamic interplay between them. And most of what we do, like people who work two hours too long, etc., most of, most of what we do is driven by several of these desires, often apparently quite incompatible. I mean, some of our behaviours is very, almost inherently contradictory because these various desires are driving us. But the one that seems to me always to be present in the mix of, of desires driving any particular bit of our behaviour is this desire to be taken seriously. Even our desire for love can be seen as an expression of our desire to be taken seriously, by which I mean, of course, our desire not necessarily for approval uh, or for status, 
Uh, something much simpler than that, the desire to be acknowledged as the unique individuals we know ourselves to be, to be noticed, to be appreciated, to be listened to. I think when that desire is frustrated, almost universally I'd say, when that desire is frustrated it brings out the worst in us. Right. It's what produces in individuals and in entire nations ugly, often violent behaviour because we react so badly to not being taken seriously. Mm. The, the idea of being unique, presumably that, that does have some biblical overtones? Oh, the Bible, the Bible grounds our, uh, our value as people, not in our intelligence or how we look or what we're able to do or our productivity, but in the fact that we're created in the image of God. And that's actually quite significant. If you pull the plug on God, then you're looking for some other reason to actually make us worth more than our Staffordshire Terriers or whatever it is. Um, and it might be our cerebral cortex. Uh, uh, or it could be that we're um, clever or intelligent or capable. And, that, and I think where you see that at the moment is um, at, at, the, at the ends of life where we're most vulnerable... Uh, birth and before birth and uh, at the end of life there's a real question about what value do people have. Um, the image of God says people are of value because of who made them and whose image they're in. So, maybe so it's quite I significant in terms of day to day how you understand people. It seems to me we are essentially social creatures. Uh, I think Tanvi made that point but it might have been in the previous meeting. Uh, uh, and because we're essentially social creatures uh, our desire to belong to small uh, little herds and to big muscular tribes is a fundamental driver and that seems to me to be where our value lies, that we are valuable to each other, we're valued by each other. And you know, on the, the deathbed example that Al's referring to, uh, it seems to me that the thing that would cause us to feel that we were without value was that we had not there was no circle, that there was no group to which we belonged and which valued us. I think these, which I think you these might have things, you can, you can put a spiritual dimension on it by all means, but I would say just from a psychological point of view, it's socially determined. Our sense of value depends on recognition from other people. I think you've probably uh, addressed this question, but if you want to elaborate further, if our value is to be taken seriously as unique individuals, why do we care about others or society or nations? Lovely question because it taps into this idea that there's never just one driver. I mean the desire to be taken seriously is not the sovereign desire. It's the one that's always there but it coexists with the desire to be useful, the desire to have something to believe in, the desire for my place, the desire to connect. But lots of the, the desire for love and that's not just to be loved, that's the desire to love. Uh, these, are, these are innate uh, drivers of, of human behaviour and so a lot of our behaviour is altruistic, not, not explicable in strictly rational terms at all. In fact, if we think that, that our behaviour has to be explained in rational terms, we've misunderstood the human condition. You know, Can we just pick up on the altruistic idea? Mm. Mm. Um, so... How do we, and maybe I'll just stick it first to Tanvir, how do we account for altruism or, or perhaps even account for random acts of kindness to strangers um, in the framework that you've explained, the evolutionary framework? Yeah, I guess if you're you know, strictly biological out, we're essentially evolved 
to live in times of scarcity in the African savannah. That's essentially what we're evolved to do. So hence, modern affluence, modern abundance is a huge challenge. It, it represents just this constant novelty is, is a massive challenge and one of the greatest sort of challenges of, of modern life. Uh, in terms of um, altruism, uh, first there's been a lot of studies on this and certainly historically there's still a view that most altruistic acts, if you dissect them, ultimately will still relate to self-interest. But there is more and more studies, particularly in, in, in animal behaviour, that there are sort of essentially random acts, that there are times when no clear benefit to the individual uh, emerges, yet in spite of that, you know, someone will, you know, be it offer a banana or, you know, offer an embrace or a host of not, things. I don't think bananas today. <laughs> yeah, not these days. Not these days. <laughs> Self-interest would override that. <laughs> but, um, so how do we account for that then? Well, I think there, prob- there possibly is something in our innate social uh, needs uh, that trumps purely individual interests. So our social needs, you could argue in a, in a again, you could argue it in an altruistic sense, that our social needs are so fundamental to us that they often trump what may be seen as individual self-interest in certain situations. Okay. And in particular, the desire to be useful. I mean, that, that's a big driver of altruistic mm-hmm. behaviour. We really want... To Imagine if the judgement someone made on your life was, he's been pretty useless. He's a useless father, he's a useless bloke around the office. I mean, he's the ultimate. What, what's, what's worse? We desire to be useful and that does drive extraordinarily selfless behaviour sometimes. Look at all the thousands of people who queued up with their mops and buckets in Brisbane after the floods to help total strangers clean up their houses. Pure altruism. No one was going to give them a pat on the back or a gold star or any of that. They wanted to be useful. They saw people in need. Now, sure, there's perhaps, as Tanvir suggests, there's some self-interest in it. Maybe they themselves will feel that they'll be taken a bit more seriously because they're good citizens. But I think that's, in that case, a minor contributing factor. The big one is, let me do something useful. Let me make a difference. And you, you touched on, Al, earlier, the idea of being made in the image of God. Um, presumably, this relational idea could also account for altruism. Sure, and I think we're, <clears throat> I think we're wired up uh, with a conscience and to know right from wrong. Um, like Jesus says... I think almost everybody who's ever heard of thinks this is a good idea. He says, treat other people the way you would want to be treated, uh, the golden rule. Um, uh, and yet, and yet we, we know that's the right thing to do, but so often we, we have trouble doing it. Um, and I know this kind of isn't very politically correct, but I, I just think from what the Bible says, and it seems to make sense to me of life, that our default setting is selfishness. Um, I've got a six-month-old grandson. I'm not expecting that we'll have to teach him to be selfish, tell lies, um, disobedient to his parents, that kind of thing. Um, he's had a nice age and he's only just learned to roll over. But um, <laughs> we'll actually have to teach him and, only as she said, socialise him to actually be, teach him that, to treat people the right way. So I just think we, we know right from wrong. We just so often have trouble doing what we know is right. Yeah, when I... When I just wanted to add a term in psychiatry, which is not something commonly used these days, but there is a term called altruistic suicide. And terrorism essentially falls under that. And so does the kamikaze pilot, etc., in, uh, say, Japan. And it's essentially where you're, you're valuing the collective needs of the group beyond your own individual self. And that's, it's almost, a, it's a pathological form of collective, 
collective identity, if you like. Okay. The reason I bring that up is essentially the history of ideas or social organisation is almost just this trade-off between the individual and the collective. And that's essentially what's going on now when we debate you know, China's communism or uh, you know, American tax. style, in many respects, the American style uh, you know, individualism. So what we're debating about altruism, etc., it has huge cultural overtones because how we, whether we view ourselves as uh, predominantly individual, individualist versus more collectivist will determine what we may attribute, what may seem altruistic, is not actually. It's more being tied to the collective. And even what you raised, say floods and wartime, often people are driven, they have this real rise in um, altruistic behaviour. It's usually driven by a much more apparent, a much stronger collective identity, which we generally usually don't have. Well, it seems that there's quite agreement amongst the three panellists that uh, we are part of a collective, we're part of a society, and that's a key driver. But I'll just pick up, Al, you've raised this, this issue of selfishness. In your book, you, uh, you say that desires, these ten desires are neutral. They can either be good or bad. Mm. We've seen the good side, altruism, etc., if I've understood the book correctly, um, is something considered bad, a bad desire or a bad outcome of a desire, to the extent that it doesn't aid social interaction or social or human interaction? Yeah, these, these desires are very much about our social... I call them social desires. So when, when would, how would you define a bad outcome? Well, they cast shadows. So the, the desire to be taken seriously, if frustrated... Uh, can lead to a determination not to take other people seriously. The desire for more, which drives all of us, uh, often quite grotesquely, always, al almost always implies a desire for others to have less. Um, the desire to belong, uh, which you know, we're more or less agreeing, is a really human characteristic. We are social creatures, mm. we are tribal creatures, we're herd animals. The desire to belong is part of us, but it can cast a shadow. If that overwhelms some of our values, some of our moral convictions, uh, that can make us too acquiescent, uh, too, uh, conform, too ready to conform to the group. Uh, every one of these desires, even the desire to be useful, can cast the shadow of trying to be too useful. You know, I'm just trying to be helpful, say so someone so does that trying mean, to run your life for if you. If I've understood it correctly, does that mean then that ultimately all morality is contextual? Uh, for me it is. Well, contextual makes it sound as though it's a bit slippery. Uh, what I'd say is that our moral sense is a social sense. That is to say, the only, the morality only makes sense if you think of it in relationships. It's, it's, you know, Robert Robinson Crusoe can believe what he likes. It doesn't affect anyone. And things we do in isolation don't affect anyone. Um, but, but there's a moral dimension as soon as it does affect someone. And from the, from the early age, Al's grandson, is it? Uh, is, is, he's about to roll over. He'll soon be crawling. He'll soon, soon start to realise that though it's a lovely... I mean, we all start off thinking we're at the centre of the universe and it is a very ugly, painful realisation when we come across initially other kids who also think they're at the centre of the universe. <laughs> you know, you yell and someone feeds you. It's not a bad arrangement. Uh, and then you realise there's all these other people with needs that are competing with yours and that's the beginning of morality because it's the beginning of saying, well... For us all to get along, I'm going to have to take your needs into account as well as mine and sometimes put yours ahead, which is, of course, the ancient 
even pre-Jesus, the ancient uh, rule of uh, treat, treating others as you would like them to treat you. That's the, that's the, that's the key to social harmony and a civilised arrangement for getting along. Yeah, there's a, um, a statement in the Bible from the brother of Jesus, uh, from James. It goes something like this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? Would that be, Al, a fair comment? I can hardly, you just quoted the Bible, what am I going to say? It was great. I think I agree with you, he's saying that the desires are, are neutral. I think the problem comes from when we look in the wrong places to fulfil them. Mm-hmm. So we want to feel secure and significant. If we look and think, if we just own more and more and more stuff, then I'll, I'll have the status symbols that will make me important and I'll have the bank balance that will make me secure. The trouble is neither of those ever fully deliver and that's where we are. We're now multiple times richer than any other generation and on the verge of financial Armageddon. So it, it's just, you know, we, we look to meet this and we want to feel loved and so we... You know, there's all sorts of things we behave in certain ways sexually or um, whatever and, it, and so often they don't deliver and, and that's where so much pain comes from in our world. So I guess where you're heading towards is the question ultimately of God. If we're looking in the wrong places, your position will be that you know, God will be the answer. If I then, we'll come back to that, but um, Hugh, your argument is that we're born to believe Mm. Uh, we do need some sort of bigger picture meta-narrative to hang on to but ultimately we can choose whichever one we want. Well it's mainly culturally determined for us. I mean Christians tend to be the offspring of Christians and Muslims tend to be the offspring of Muslims etc. Atheists tend to be the offspring of atheists. Mm. There's there's plenty of traffic um, but that's the the core position. These things are culturally determined. You know you have a Christian country and most of the people who grow up in that country have some kind of Christian belief. Uh, so culturally determined, but certainly one of our most fundamental desires is to have a system of beliefs that will allow us to make sense of what's happening. We need a kind of code or a template that we can lay over what's happening so that we can explain it to ourselves. Uh, we, we, we are a bit uncomfortable with the mysteries. It's quite hard to just live with the mysteries. So we like to demystify. We like to have explanations and analysis and interpretation. And that's what our beliefs do for us. And the, the, the good news about beliefs is that when we do have a worldview, when we do have a belief system that works for us, uh, it's typically very good for us, good for our mental health, good for our physical health. It's a therapeutic experience to believe and these beliefs then can become very powerful for us. You know, the, the, the idea that, for example, the concept of faith healing is a well-documented phenomenon. If people believe something, it's in the medical literature as well. If, uh, uh, in, in studies of new drugs, for example, where medical researchers give people placebos and 30% of them experience the therapeutic effect of the drug they thought they were taking. You can't argue with that. That's belief at work. So, Janvier, would you argue on this question of belief in God that that belongs in that sort of third realm of our brain, the sort of trying to make sense of things? Yeah, it looks hard to know. I think um, it's probably not 
probably not clear because the third realm, it, it, you could definitely call it the higher order thing. The third brain is largely tied to reason. But these are the bits of our, um, uh, I guess, ourselves that are you know, potentially unique. So where we're meaning-seeking machines, we really are. We have to attribute merely matter, etc. isn't enough for us. Well, presumably and the reptiles and mammals don't believe in God in layers one and two. Well, absolutely. So, but uh, uh, can we not yeah. say absolutely? We simply don't. We don't know. know. Yeah, we don't. Know. We don't. Know. <laughs> but certainly, yeah. the way we behave, we we are meaning-seeking machines. Yeah. Historically, God has provided that to the to large portions of the human race. So, a big challenge today is how people attribute meaning, and we find all manner of ways. You know, be it the food we eat or. Uh, the, what we wear, we often ascribe a bigger value to often, uh, you know, previously uh, mundane things or things that were attributed to us by religion. So absolutely, we, we need a system of ethics, we need systems of meaning uh, uh, to make sense of our world. And I know as a, in psychiatry you often see people, most people believe they behave rationally, but underneath that there's always a set of uh, ultimate beliefs or superstitions even that often drive our behaviours. And that's where you see people under pressure from sudden losses, be it a big tragedy, sudden death, sudden job loss, when their worldview is really thrown apart. What they viewed, you know, how the cogs of the world, how the cogs of their world move, when that's challenged, it can really, you know, throw them off and, you know, well, sometimes there, cause mental illness. Well, there is a question there for you I might just add on. Uh, well, that's actually directed to you, but I'll first turn it to you in light of what you just said. Would the reason for high suicide in Western modern society stem from feeling useless? Well, I mean, that's a massive question. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's, a, there's, a host, <laughs> there's a host of factors. Um, but certainly, you know, one of the arguments for that would be that we are increasingly... Modern liberalism can leave us adrift. So we're essentially the way our system works is individuals are at the centre of social organisation. We exist as individuals. As long as you don't do harm to others, you can pretty much do what you like. So that's largely the way our system's ordered. Uh, so it's a very enlightenment view of human freedoms and you know, one that by and large has worked very well. But it's not one that gives us good collective identity. It's not one, especially in modern, highly diverse societies, collective identity is one of the biggest challenges, how people find that. So there's, there's certainly an argument, and the sociological term is called anomie, and, uh, by a French socialist, some of you, Durkheim, and he, it basically means without name, where we exist as kind of these lone individuals, not really connected to anything. So and could you argue that the Enlightenment project to put God aside and find our own meaning has failed? I think that's a stretch. <laughs> but you, but you, you're suggesting well, it depends that... Well, it uh, depends what its purpose was. It certainly hasn't failed in... Um, uh, it's improving standards of living, improving... In finding know, meaning. Human reason... So ultimately, enlightenment is about is putting human reason at the centre of human life. Mm. What we're increasingly finding, you know, is that human reason is not enough. Mm. That we do have these extra big desires, particularly finding meaning, particularly finding collective identity. And uh, that's one of the big challenges. So I certainly wouldn't overturn enlightenment because I think that's dramatically improved so much of human life. Sure, sure. But there are, there are things about modern, liberal, secular societies that are not fulfilling certain human needs. So, Hugh, um, why is it that a uh, well-functioning, rational businessman will say, touch wood? <laughs> why indeed? Uh, and, and, by the way, would you put your hand up, please, if you don't know your star sign? 
<laughs> right, so two out two. of... <laughs> I mean, it's a very odd about these, about these uh, non-religious superstitions, conspiracy theories, astrology. 35% of Australians say they believe in astrology. And I shouldn't sound sceptical. I, I may have offended 35% of the audience. <laughs> and even people who say they don't believe it. They're in the hairdresser with a magazine two months out of date and they're looking at what the stars say. Uh, and I've heard people say, look, I don't believe any of this astrology rubbish. On the other hand, my husband is a textbook Aries. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so why are we so superstitious? Well, we have this absolutely desperate need for a framework that will help us make sense of what's going on. And rationality doesn't seem to be sufficient. It's, it's not enough and of course materialism is not enough. I mean, the great, back to the suicide thing, uh, as to, uh, it, 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 it is a mystery. It's too complicated for us to give a simple explanation because often it's to do with mental illness. Uh, but it's also to do with rates of family breakdown, to do with a materialistic society that promises far more than it can ever deliver. It's to do with not feeling as if we're being taken seriously. The absent father syndrome is a huge problem, particularly in drugs as a, uh, as a transitional stage to suicide. Um, there are lots of things. That the, the, the question of raised the, the desire to be useful. That's a factor, but it won't be, it won't be the only factor. Okay. Al, did you want to add to... Um why we might be superstitious or what drives our behaviour? Oh, I, think, I think we're wired up, the vast majority of people are wired up to know there's more than just the material and so there's that feeling of something's there even if you're not sure what. Hmm. Uh, I think decisions about God, religion and so on are, are very similar to other decisions. It's not that religious decisions are irrational and other decisions are rational. It's just in, in each thing you decide, there's more going on than just logic. Hmm. There's, yes. there's the heart and the desires and so on. So I'm not sure that anyone is clearly, coldly objective about the question of, of God, for example. Or, or any system of belief that helps you to make sense hmm. of it. The question of whether it's rational is pretty irrelevant, really. I mean, Dawkins is barking up the wrong tree. Uh, that's not what it's about. What it's about is how many of these desires are satisfied by... Re- I mean, I heard a Jew say, or uh, uh, the granddaughter of a Jew, say of her grandfather, he says, I go to the synagogue to sit next to another Jew. Mm. And there's a lot, yeah, a lot of people about go to church yes, yeah. about, about the tribal need being satisfied. Yeah. It's not just about... We might just future. try to tackle one last issue before we, I will then ask you each to wrap up. The fact that we're all going to die, our mortality. Um, how does that drive why I do what I do? Tanvir? It's the elephant in the room, always, you know, and, and um, you know, pretty much after you probably second, probably up to about 2025, 20, you feel invincible, but, you know, you soon realise that even if it's not conscious, um, so a lot of our desire for more particularly, which Hugh writes about, is driven by that, that we have a finite time and we want to, essentially in the modern world where we don't necessarily have a system of ideas, certainly not on a mass basis, so we kind of choose how to live. Now, if you don't have a set of beliefs how to order the world or you don't believe in the supernatural, then it really is a case of, all right, I'm going to madly fit in as much as stuff. It's almost like a points balance. Bucket list. So, say, if you're religion, you could argue, you know, it was often seen as a point of sin versus, you know, good deeds sometimes, you know, at a, at a very base 
simplistic level. So modern terms, some people see a point system of how much fun can I have, how much can I acquire, etc. So death is always the elephant in the room and um, whether it's conscious. And we also live in a society where death's almost invisible. We barely see it. Yeah. It's, everyone dies in the hospital and something uh, virtually unseen. So death doesn't animate life as openly as it has done historically. Death was all around us mm. in other human societies. Yet, it still unconsciously drives much of the urgency, the desperation in our lives. Hugh, we, we're going to have to close up in a few minutes, but uh, you argue that you do need to come to grips with this. Mm. Yes, I think it is. I agree uh, with what Tanvi is saying. I, I, I think that one of the things that we, in our culture, we have not been good at facing is the fact that uh, we, we have a mortal span uh, and, that, and that the knowledge of our death should be uh, a major uh, factor in how we approach everything we do. Uh, it seems to me it enhances the value of everything we do. It enhances uh, the fulfilment that's available to us in daily life if we acknowledge that it, that it comes to an end. There is, of course, another view. Al's probably about to uh, uh, bring it forward, which is what I describe in the book, perhaps rather unkindly, as cosmic greed, which is this won't be enough. I want even more, I want more of everything, including life. Uh, I want to think there's more later. Well, it seems to me that death, in the way that I'm talking about it here, is not about doesn't it doesn't really affect uh, the, the the argument I'm making whether there's more beyond or not. It's this life. Uh, as we know it comes to an end and it seems to me we do maximise its value and maximise our value if we are constantly aware of the fact that it, that it will end yes. and could end at any time. Yeah. Now, is eternal life cosmic greed? I, I hadn't really thought of it uh, that way. Uh, the Bible would say that ultimately we die because we've walked away from God, the source of life, and the Christian message is that we can actually know God and be in relationship with him uh, yeah, through eternity. So is it greed or is it what we're actually designed for? Uh, we might have to put a different label on it. I'll just give you each 20-30 seconds if you'd like to sort of wrap up some thoughts on why do I do what I do? So fundamentally we're obviously a, a very complex mix of instinctual drives, social needs, uh, human reason and kind of individual uh, fulfilment or individual desires and uh, and that changes according to whether you've existed as an individual or in big groups. So often behaviour in big groups is much more primitive. One of the biggest clashes we have today, so especially with the post-financial crisis, is we are getting a more nuanced view of human behaviour beyond human reason and this is challenging the way we organise society. One of the most underrated desires is what we've discussed today and that's for collective identity and meaning in our lives. I'm going to give Hugh you the last word. So, Al, uh, wrap up. Uh, I would think we're wired up for relationship. That, that's what we're wired up for, whether that be with our creator, uh, with other people, in families and so on, and that's really the... Um, that's oxygen for us. Um, and as a society we've been sold the lie that it's all about owning more stuff and having more and more stuff and as Tanvi said about more and more individualism and I think that's part of the reason why we're so wealthy and in so much pain as a, as a culture. 
last word here. Yes, thanks, Peter. Uh, yes, I, I'd, I'd reiterate that everything we do is the result of this constant interaction, which is often a contest between these desires that drive us. And I think we need to be a little kinder with ourselves in understanding how these drives will often compete with each other, will often cause us to do one, say one thing and do another, but more importantly encourage us to be a bit more compassionate, a bit more tolerant of others who are similarly struggling to bring these ten desires into some kind of harmony, into some kind of manageable tension. We don't get them all satisfied all the time. A very wise American psychiatrist recently wrote, uh, if you have someone to love, something useful to do and something to look forward to, that's about as good as it gets. Well, that's only three out of my ten. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.